Hello and welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast with me, your host, Fabio Molle. Every week I speak to the big hitters in the world of tennis, both on and off the court, about the game and how we can all get 1% better every day at what we do. As an ex-national team player, I know exactly how tough this can be. So I'm on a journey to get the very best tips and advice from the world of tennis. Last week on the Function Tennis Podcast, I spoke to former world number three, Ivan Lubicic. In our chat, Ivan opened up about the challenging circumstances he experienced growing up and how this led to a successful career. He also told me about the amazing academy he started in Loshen, Croatia, and what it's like to coach Roger Federer, as well as all other things like dealing with pressure and all other challenges he faced growing up. It was a really interesting chat. Feedback was absolutely amazing. And it's now official required listening if you're a Functional Tennis Podcast fan. So get listened to it if you haven't i really recommend you do this week on the Function Tennis Podcast, I'm speaking to legendary tennis coach and former player Rick Macy. Rick has been a mainstay in tennis for years, training some of the greatest to ever play, including Andy Roddick, Maria Sharapova, and of course, Serena and Venus Williams. He was recently immortalized in the film King Richard, where he was played by John Bernthal and still continues today training the next generation of tennis players at the Rick Macy Tennis Academy in Florida. In our conversation, Rick details his experience training Venus and Serena Williams when they were kids. Rick also shares the moment he was told they were going to be making the film about the Williams sisters and their father, King Richard, and what he felt like being portrayed on the big screen. Rick also gives us some amazing advice for how players can recover from setbacks and much more. He's a great talker. I really enjoyed listening to him. Let's get into today's episode. Rick, welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. No, it's good good to be here. I jumped off the court and I'm ready to roll. Y- you are an amazing force. Uh, you say you get up at like, I don't know, 4 a.m. What time do you get up at? You're in the neighborhood. You're in the neighborhood. I get up at 3. I've gotten up at 3 for the last, uh, you know, really 25 years. And I'm very like structured. I run a half mile every morning and uh, then I open up... Uh, the park at five o'clock and a lot of times what's really crazy is once I set everything up I'm doing some uh, zoom or I'm doing something on my phone with people in Belarus or in Eastern Europe because of the time change so uh, but I usually jump on the court at 6 a.m. with the regular kids great well you're full of energy throughout this episode throughout this chat I'm going to try and find out where you get the energy from because I want some of it (laughs) where looking back at I'm sure you got this a long time ago but where did you learn or get all this positive energy and enthusiasm <laughs> and passion where where, where where does it come from who's to blame for this <laughs> well i don't know you know my i grew up in a small town in uh ohio called greenville it's about 20 miles southwest of dayton uh, my dad he actually passed away when i was 10 years old so it was me and my sister and my mom you know i, I kind of got into tennis i just by luck i live a half mile from the park i picked up a racket Went down there, hit against the wall. I liked the sound. It always came back to me, you know. And uh, fast forward that story. I mean, that was the late 60s. And by 18, I was number one in Ohio Valley with no lessons. You know, I played nine hours a day. I'd hit after basketball practice. And I've just always been kind of a leader and kind of the guy to put everything together. And uh, so I think it started then. But I've always had that energy, you know, to be first and to put things together. And I've never lost that. And uh, that kind of I got into teaching. So that's one of the cornerstones or the staples of the way I the way I teach. And uh, I still have it today. And hopefully I can, I can do it 20 more years. And you took up tennis was quite late, wasn't it? How old were you when you played first played? Yeah, no, I didn't pick up a racket till I was 12 years old. And I've had no instruction. How crazy is that? I was a golfer. I was very good at golf. I played every sport, football, baseball, basketball, high level, you know, in the Hall of Fame for basketball. And but tennis, you know, I liked it. It was individual. It was all on me. You know, I had great wheels. I was very like clever. I could see the court from being a point guard in basketball. And I taught myself how to play. And uh, we didn't have indoor courts, you know, in Ohio. That's kind of you know, I had to drive 30, 40 miles to play indoor and pay for it. That wasn't going to happen. So I would actually shovel snow and get it hit against the back of the wall of the high school after basketball practice. 
where I'd hit in the gym with my T2000, if no one remembers those rackets, and just to get in repetitions. But doing it the hard way, you know, made me appreciate things, you know, and uh, just made me mentally very strong. And so I think that those qualities are, like I said, the staple or cornerstone of how I teach and how I can look at things very objectively when I work with all kinds of kids, because obviously kids are very different these days. You know, there's more entitlement and they're a little soft. And, you know, if I just did it my way, I'd probably be here alone. So I'm very versatile as a coach and I can take the temperature. But I've always had that energy. And I think energy um, uh, and it, it's real and it's genuine. I think those Midwest values, treating others better than you want to treat yourself, caring about others more than maybe yourself. And then if you have the knowledge, which you can get along the way, um, and then how to say it, why to say it, when to say it, who to say it to. That's the art of coaching. It's not just the biomechanics or the science part, which I know, you know, probably as well as anybody, but I'm not that type of guy where I'm going to talk over your head. I can bang, you know, I can make it work right for you that hour, that second, that minute. And so, but I've always wanted to get better. Yeah. That's another thing. I, I told Dave Meltzer, my partner on the podcast, you know, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. I prefer better. So every day I'm, I'm getting better and I got better this morning on the court. Nice. And just going back to your younger days playing tennis, did you have dreams and ambitions to be a pro tennis player? What were your tennis dreams back then? Yeah, no, I, I wanted to be a pro tennis player. And look, I went from picking up a racket to number one in Ohio Valley, one of the best players in Ohio. And I got to a level where I was beating guys that played, you know, one at Stanford or they were 400 in the world. So I got to a very high level. But I knew at the end of the day, if unless you're going to be great, there's no money in it. And at a year early age, I just like helping others. I was very good at analyzing things. You'll love this. I used to go to the movies with my friends when I was a kid and after five minutes, none of them would sit with me because I'm there trying to figure out how it's going to end. So I'm sitting there eating popcorn alone and they're somewhere else. But I've always been that way, figuring it out. Football, baseball, basketball. I've always analyzed things. So that is another little nugget in the teaching smorgasbord that I bring to the table. Uh, but yeah, it all started at a young age and I, I always had goals to play pro. But once I knew I couldn't, I played a few qualifiers, pro qualifiers. I, I knew I wasn't ever going to be that good. So I got into teaching and uh, I haven't looked, looked back since. I got in at age 22 and here I am at 68 and I teach more hours than anybody in the United States privately, seven days a week. And I just go, whether it's a five-year-old, someone on the pro tour, because I work with a lot of girls on the tour and their coaches or an adult, I get, I, I get just as much satisfaction out of teaching a 70-year-old that wants to learn the ATP forehand and have reconstructive surgery from Rick Macy. It's amazing. I, I, I and that's that's why uh, you know people will jump on a plane, come here, and it's uh, uh, it's expensive. It's eight hundred an hour for a private, but uh, I just feel that way with everybody, and more importantly, the customer or the client feels that, and then obviously they tell others, and uh, the rest is history. That's why you know I, I'm still going strong. Well, okay, I'm, I'm going to cut back to the, your junior days again, and then we're going to get more deep into coaching. But I have one more question regarding, well, a couple more regarding your junior days. You, you became the best in your state. You started tennis late, and you're all about the functional tennis philosophy. It's like getting better every day. You want to constantly, if you're not improving, you're getting worse. So I think you've yeah. had that a long time. As somebody late to the game, how did you improve every day? What was your secret with, with having to travel to courts, pay for courts? You, you didn't make excuses. How did you get better? Yeah, well... Great question. I just outworked the competition and I still do that to this day. You know, I getting up at three, I got some extra time on my hands. So I just outworked the competition. Like I said, I would play all day with anybody, anytime, anywhere. And I used to, cause I didn't have a lot of people at my level in my hometown. So you got to remember, I had nothing to gain and everything to lose once I started getting better, but it made me mentally stronger. When you don't have anything, you know, when you're used, when you're supposed to beat someone two and two, you should beat them two and two, not four and four, you know? And so I would just grind my friends and down to a pulp, you know, but I would literally 
get it, take my mom's car, drive to Dayton every day during the summer or Springfield, Ohio, 40, 50, 60 miles away just to play a match against the number one player at Illinois or, you know, an All-American or, or whatever. I would just, I love to compete. You know, I just love to compete, but I got better through repetition and you know, watching and imitating. But I really got better by just, I just work. And what was the inspiration that would, you know, keep the fire going? I know you're so positive, which is amazing to see, but was there an inspiration there, something you look up to? Well, growing up, I always liked how Connors played, you know what I mean? He's a feisty guy. And then one day I'm doing a speaking engagement with the guy, you know, and, you know, so at the end of the day, you know, that would be one person that I really liked growing up because I like his style and I kind of modeled, you know, we kind of had the same haircut. We had the same racket. So that's kind of who I did uh, model my game after a little bit aggressive. And I, I liked his feisty attitude. And I was just a very good competitor. And I think that was really my calling card. I wasn't going to go away. And I just always was there like a mosquito bothering you. And if someone was going to beat me, they had to beat me. So I think I got the most out of my ability as a player. And I'm still getting better as a coach. And when did the whole coaching journey start? I know you said you like to analyze things. and But when did you decide, okay, I want to be a tennis coach? How did that happen? It was very interesting because when I started getting good as a player in Greenville, Ohio, and by the way, they had steel nets, chipped up courts, no windscreens, okay, and through my just blowing this whole thing up and started getting publicity and, you know, not losing any matches, that many in high school or whatever, we end up getting nine courts, the courts get resurfaced, we get cotton nets, okay, and I just turned the whole thing into an experience when people, everybody hang out the tennis court, all the kids, hundreds of kids, people started then asking me when I was 16, help me with my game. So I started like giving lessons, like I would help people out for like $2 or whatever when I was like 16 and 17. But it really started at in Troy, Ohio, which was like 20 miles away. I took a job there as assistant of the head pro. His name was Tom Friedel. Uh, he was very good friends with Don Budge, Jack Kramer, Ellsworth Vines, names of the past people might not remember. And after the first week, he said something to me that I'll never, ever forget. He goes, you're going to be a great coach someday. So I went in as assistant and within no time, I started teaching all the ladies and all the kids. And, you know, I just had a gift. I didn't know, obviously, what I know now, but I had a gift, how to motivate and educate and stimulate and from that experience, I knew if I ever really wanted to get into this, which I did, I had to get to Florida or California, but I needed experience. So I took a job for a year in Vineland, New Jersey, okay, which is about 30 miles north, I think, Atlantic City. I went there as like a, the director and the manager so I could learn budgets and payroll. So I did that for like a year. I was the number one player in New Jersey. I still played. I love to compete still. I still wanted to play. And then I said, I got to get to Florida. And this amazing story, it was a Sunday afternoon. It was raining. I watched a tennis match on TV. Andrea Yeager, Tracy Austin, Martina Navratilova, Shriver, uh, all who have become good friends of mine. And it was the United Airlines Sunbird Cup at a place called Greenleaf Golf and Tennis Resort. Uh, kind of the same resort you saw in the movie of King Richard. That's kind of where it all started. And I went down there for an interview. The guy said, listen, I got a stack of resumes like this. I'm going to make a decision by Monday. If you want to fly down on your own, you can come and talk to me. And I said, what the heck? I'm going to just see what this is about. I went there. We spent the weekend together. It was like 100 degrees. A frog would go across the court and die. I mean, it was so humid. There was palmetto bugs, like bigger than this laptop that I'm talking to you on. And he took me back to the airport Sunday night. He goes, if you want this job, it's yours. Two weeks later, I moved to Greenleaf. And from there, the miracle and the orange grows, because we were out in the orange grows, it all started in the early 80s. How old were you then? Um, I was, okay, good question, probably late 20s, maybe 27, 28, okay? So I went there in 1980, I went to Greenleaf, and I'm 68, so you do the math, you're probably better at that than me. So I went there in 1980, 
but uh, it was in the middle of the Orange Grove. They were building condominiums. They did have a pro tennis event, as I said, but that was to sell real estate. And I turned it into, it was a miracle in the Orange Grove, as everybody said. You know, uh, nine-year-old Tommy Ho, his dad brought him to me. The kid held the racket like a, a ping pong paddle with his severe Western group grip. Back in the early 80s, that was kind of bizarre grip. You know, it's yeah. very prominent now. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, this is a weapon or a liability. I'm trying to figure it out, but he got mega spin, unreal angles like Nadal and all these guys. And I said, this kid has potential. Fast forward that story at 10 years, at 10 years, at nine years old, at 12 years old, he became the most dominant junior player ever. All four gold, gold balls in singles, all four in doubles. All right. He had 15 gold balls by the age of 15. Okay. More than Courier, Sampers, Chang, Al Parker. I mean, crazy. Okay. What Tommy did. And from that, Jennifer Capriotti's dad saw this kid serve. Tommy was hitting it over 100 miles an hour as a 12-year-old, and he was a lefty. And he could kick it. Guys would stand there and go. They, they couldn't even return it. He was winning nationals, losing five games in national. It was child abuse. Okay, I'm glad I didn't get in trouble. It was child abuse. Like, he would just torture guys. Okay, he was so good mentally already, but technically he was very rock solid. And then Jennifer came. Just, I'm going to just jump in here before we talk about Jennifer. Tommy Ho, I don't know much about him. What happened to Tommy Ho? Like, you know, all these great juniors, there can be world champs at 12, 13, 14. It doesn't guarantee success. So ultimately, I'm not sure what happened to Tommy. Maybe you can tell us. Yeah, no, listen, nothing happened to him. He had amazing coaching, okay? He had unreal fundamentals, but athletically, he was a little limited. I mean, to this day, he's like one of my best friends, you know, I mean, we talk a lot. And he, uh, his family was like my family, okay? So he was like my own son, you know? So, but Tommy was a little limited athletically. And I knew as he got older, that would hurt him to play offense and defense. But all that being said, okay, he got the 70, I think 72 in singles, 11 in doubles. You know, he won many doubles titles because you only have to cover half the court. Okay, he had a lot of good close losses. Courier, Edberg, Jonas Swenson, I could go on and on. Um, he beat Bergera, uh, you know, who's three in the world. So, but he overachieved. But when you look at it as a junior, you think he's going to be the next Agassi Sampers. And I'm telling that that's not what's going to happen here. He'll be a good pro, but he's not going to be the flavor of the month because athletically he wasn't that. Whenever I talk like that, his agent would get mad at me and say, no, no, don't talk like that. You know, I said, listen, I'm, I'm the coach and he's like my son and I'm just being honest. You know, if you can't move at a high level, you're going to be limited. You better be able to serve like Opelka or Isner. And next, when did you come across Jennifer? What is the Jennifer story? First off, she's, all these kids like my own kids. Uh, first off, I love Jennifer. Still talk to her mom. She came to me at 10 years old. Late, She had great, great fundamentals by the late, great Jimmy Everett. Low center of gravity, racket back in the parking lot. The ball was on a string. You know, she was like a little machine. Okay, but she played like Chris ever. Nothing about nothing bad about Chris. I mean, if you're mentally like Chris, that's a good thing. But stood way far back, side spin on the forehand, two hand a backhand was money. The serve, let's just get it in, you know. And I'm seeing this Celis girl over at IMG Academy, and I know what's coming. In the '90s, the game started to change. The rackets, the technology, more, and I'm so I'm ahead of the curve. And I'm there with Stefano, her dad, saying, listen, I want her to be the next Jennifer Capriotti. I don't want her to be the next Chris Everett. Yeah. So I got her on the baseline. I changed her forehand so she could grab it instead of come across it. And I turned her serve. She got to hit it like 113 because her serve was like brutal. I had to loosen her up. She was the tin man. I turned her into the scarecrow. So I got a lot of mileage out of that. But mentally, she had it. You know, and I, I'm on the record at 12 saying she'll be number one in the world. So as a 12-year-old, listen to this. She won the 18 and under in 1988. As a 12-year-old, she won the hard court and the clay court in 1988. In the same year, 
Tommy, as a 15-year-old, won Kalamazoo. I had the Daily Double. I had the Daily Double. I had the two most amazing juniors at the same time, and those records still stand today. So then at 14, Jennifer was top 10 in the world. Her dad took over the coaching. Obviously, there was a speed bump, but you know I'm going to defend her because everybody jumped off that bandwagon, and they can tell whatever story. Only three people, well, besides her brother too, Stefano Capriotti, Denise Capriotti, and Rick Macy. You don't lose the talent. You don't lose the ability. You lose the confidence. You can lose the fitness. But she not. you talk about the comeback. Forget Rocky Balboa. Forget the, the – you want to talk about a movie. She disappears, gets to like 160, and kind of doesn't do anything for a couple years. In and out, in and out, in and out. Listen to this. All the way back. Not to 30, not to 20, number one in the world, three grand slams, Olympic gold in the summer, huge contract from Fila when everybody wrote her off. So this is very important as a coach and a parent. It's not where you start, it's where you finish. You don't lose the ability, the talent, but a lot of stuff can get in your head. And, uh, you know, I, 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 loved, I love Jennifer, you know, and I, even with the movie King Richard, I wish they'd have put in the credits her comeback because how she was portrayed was one way, but they should have told the other story, the backstory, because to be knocked down and go out when you disappear mm. and you come back and you become number one and you're just plowing through Davenport and Hingis and Sellis, it's like, see you later, alligator. Uh, that's how great Jennifer Capriotti was. Yeah, that was impressive. And tell me, when, speaking about King Richard, Tell me about the day you got the call. Well, it was, it was interesting because uh, John Bernthal, uh, who I never, <laughs> nothing is John. I never heard of the guy, but everybody that works for me knew of the Punisher. And this guy's going to play me in the movie, you know, but I didn't, I didn't think anything about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just so much in my own bubble. I didn't realize the magnitude of what was going to happen here. And I think the biggest thing that I thought about the movie even though it was a bio, which they kind of had to tell the way it is, even though if they could kind of puff it up, are they going to tell the truth? Are they going to tell it like it really happened? Because I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. And when Bernthal called me, we talked a bunch of times. He watched a video of me. He read my book. Uh, he talked, obviously, Venus and Serena. And we talked uh, a lot. So, but I didn't know how the movie was going to go. Even... When I talked to the producers, because see, I wasn't consulted on the movie. I wasn't involved. I should have been. It would have been even better. I got more stories than anybody, and no one can tell a story, especially about Venus and Serena, to make you laugh and cry. But that's a, we'll get into that later. So when the movie came out, I didn't know what to expect. Oh, but wow. when it came out, no, I didn't know what to expect. If they were going to tell, and what I like more than anything, it showed a couple things how much I cared and what the heck was I thinking? Why would I take a chance and put millions of dollars, not hundreds, millions of dollars, sweat equity, hard dollars on two girls, nine and 10 who had potential, but on the outside, no one could really see it. It's what I saw on the inside that there was a burning desire. There was a rage. I never saw anything like this. Okay. And I'm thinking in my mind, six feet, 150, 510, 145. I'm projecting as a coach when I went out to Compton. So you got to understand, I took a chance. Now, I could have been wrong, could add an injury. It could have catastrophically blown up. So, but I'm glad they told that I took this chance. And then you could see the bond I had with, you know, the girls and obviously with Richard, even though he was stubborn and out of control and all that, it, was, it wasn't like that. He was my best friend. I knew that I was there for one reason. I was on a mission for VW and Serena. It wasn't about Richard. Um, so, and that's the art of coaching also. I not only coach the kids, I coach the parents. That's the art of when to keep your mouth shut, how to navigate this thing. Because listen, like all tennis dads, they interfere. And you got to know how to navigate that whole thing. And going back, I've heard you say when you went there, you saw them play for the first time. You're like, oh, these are probably you know, they're going to be top 100. They're nothing special really there. But 
describe that moment when you saw them play points, play games, what you felt and saw. Tell me those emotions. Yeah, no, first off, it's a great question. And that question has been asked more than any, uh, really over my whole career. Because people see that video that I have of Venus and Serena at nine and 10. I literally have had over 10,000 parents say, my kid's better than those two. Because they're looking at the outside. It's a good lesson for any parent, coach, or Rick Macy. You don't judge a book by the cover. The cover could be amazing, the book bad. The cover amazing, the book bad. You know, so when I went out there and we met and all that good stuff, and we went to the park, all right, and we got on the court. Now, remember, my blueprint for greatness is Jennifer. I mean, she's textbook on textbook, you know, everything. I mean, she's like, to this day, I've never had anybody technically as sound as Jennifer. That's crazy. And now I'm seeing arms and legs and hair and they had beads and they were falling off and they had to sweep them off the court. And I'm sitting there going, I'm doing all these drills and I'm going, what in God's name am I doing in Compton, California? I, I'm sitting there going, this is crazy. Okay. Cause they did have an article on Venus like five months earlier in the New York times that she was undefeated in the 10 and under whatever that means. Okay. So and Venus was quite tall. She was like 5'8". Serena was still, you know, little. So I didn't see it. I didn't see it. It was just like all over the place, you know. And then I said, let's play competitive points because I wanted to see, like, compete. So me and me and Serena, I call her Jamika. I call her Meek. That's her middle name. We played against Venus points. And the whole landscape changed. Everything changed. It literally, it freaked me out. And I, I don't freak out about anything. I'm going, once I said game on, the footwork, okay, they started like popping the popcorn, extra butter. They were like, bah, bah. it was like, it was crazy. The preparation on both sides got better, but the desire to get to the ball, like I said earlier, there was a rage. There was something inside both of them. The balls were so far away, some kids won't even think of running. Some kids won't even run. Some kids, they might run, but stop. There's no way they could have got it, and they might not get it today. And they were, they'd run for the ball. And I'm going, that's very unique. And both the girls, especially Venus, her nose was that far from the ground when she bent to get a ball. And she was 5'8". Same with Serena. Now, people might look at that as you're off balance, uncoordinated. There was such a desire to get to the ball. I never saw people compete like that. So it, listen, it wasn't filet mignon. They weren't a hamburger. It was kind of like a cheeseburger now. It wasn't like a filet, but that's when I start projecting size, speed, strength, but they were bulletproof. This was baked in extra crispy from birth, game on, handle pressure. I saw it in Sharapova. I saw it in Kennan as a unique quality. If you already have, you can get it later on, but I saw that that they were going to be able to handle pressure, just like Roddy, because they were all about the competition. The minute it, it was a very different thing, almost like doing the drills, they were bored and they were gamers. So right then and there, and this is in the movie, I go, Richard, come here. Let me tell you something, because it was more about Venus because she was older. I said, you got the next female Michael Jordan on your hands. And he puts his arm around me and he goes, no, brother, man, I got the next two. I love and it. so listen to this. So let me finish. So then Venus goes, Daddy, can I go to the bathroom? And hugging, kissing, just like you see in the movie, close-knit family, amazing. Venus goes out the gate. Listen to this. She walks on her hands for five feet, does backward cartwheels for five feet. Now, remember, this was 1991. If you were big and strong, you weren't nimble in pro tennis. So I'm not only thinking... Can they be number one in the world, both these girls? They can transcend the sport. I thought it right then and there. Because, but at first, I didn't, I didn't see it on the outside. You know, it's what I saw on the inside where I eventually made the decision. And the rest is history, as they say. The rest is history. Yeah, it, and you say you invested millions into them. Yeah. Was that just through coaching, housing? How many years well, did it actually... Were they with you? 91 to 95. I took Venus to make her debut. I was involved in the $12 million contract. Yeah, no, when you get into housing, you know, and I got them a $92,000 motorhome. 
That was funny because in the movie it said mobile home. That's what Richard had down there. He didn't even know it was a motor home. <laughs> you know, a mobile home is one of those homes you live in that's like a little shack. It was a motor home. And they bought a $92,000 motor home, had a bed in it, TV. It's like, I'm going, wait a minute, my car's only like, uh, like 30000 So motor home, housing, food. Uh, you got Taekwondo, boxing, everything. I mean, I went all in to provide one-stop shopping, a motivational paradise for these two kids and an environment. Two hitters that they couldn't even win a game off of for three years. These guys were 400 in the world, never missed a ball, just would smoke them every day, five hours a day. But the wild card, they were with me four to five hours a day. So what that meant is, I'm not four or five hours in the academy or four or five hours doing another private. So I was all in and yeah. uh, Venus and I, you want to hear something really interesting. We used to practice two hours a day on grass. Oh. And there's a story right here in my office, okay, from Angela Buxton. And she interviewed me and I was 92. And I said, let me tell you right now, you can't see it. I use this as a teaching tool, shorten her backswing, take the ball early. A bad volley is good. A good volley is great. A great volley is spectacular on grass. This little girl someday will win five Wimbledons. It's right here in my office above where I'm speaking. Fast forward at 32 years later, five Wimbledons. How prophetic is that? And she was 11. And you couldn't see it. Okay, you could. no one could see it. But I did it as a teaching tool. So the moral of the story is this. Need a lot of technical help. But if you notice, everybody who I've taught and kind of through my career, even if they're just very good college players, whether you go with Mary Pierce, Anastasia Mesquina, Kennan, Sharapova, Capriotti, Venus, Serena, you know, there's all common threads. Take it early, cut the court, on the rise, eat the second serve for breakfast. People are off balance. I'd like you to swarm the net. Uh, they don't play like, you know, prevent defense. So I, I have a different way that I try to teach girls, maybe not different, but and I think the Williamses, where they stand on the return and how they play, that actually transformed tennis a little bit. Because if you don't punch them, they're gonna punch you. It's amazing to listen to Rick because despite all the things he's accomplished in tennis, he's still so enthusiastic and so passionate about the game. Confidence is contagious. Enthusiasm is contagious. Rick is an outstanding coach, not because of his technical insight, but I believe because he imparts the energy and zeal for the sport to the younger players. To master the craft and devote your life to tennis, you have to love it. To get that from your coach every day must make those early mornings, challenging training sessions and career setbacks far easier to manage. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. This is just a quick reminder you're listening to Functional Tennis, the podcast that helps you get 1% better every day. With me, Fabio Molly. Coming up on the podcast, I ask Rick for his thoughts on Iban Lubitschik's assessment that not enough younger players watch sport and know about the greats from the past and whether that's a problem. Rick also gives me some amazing advice for how players can recover from setbacks. But first, I want to ask Rick about the time he described Sophia Kennan as the scariest little creature. Take a listen. You described uh, Sophia Kennan as the scariest little creature. Tell me about that. Yeah, no, listen, I, I love Sophia. She was different than everybody I've had because she came to me at five. Remember, most of these others came to me at 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, Mary Pierce at 16, and Mesquina at 17. So a little different timeline at five. And I got this amazing video of me coaching her at five, six, seven years old. I took her to a USPTA convention. She was taking every ball right off the bounce and people thought she was the Wizard of Oz. Like, what is this all about? But she was amazing. I never had someone that young who had that timing, but I expedited that learning curve when I had her take everything right off the bounce. Because timing sometimes can be natural mm. and sometimes you can put it together. 
and she had it kind of already, but I expedited it. She, I give her high balls and be like, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. And she used to hit 100 drop shots a week. And her dad would literally freak out. And I said, Alex, chill out. Someday she'll have the best drop shot on the tour. And she has the best drop shot on the tour. Anywhere on the court, return a serve, that backhand drop shot off. I mean, because she's going to need it because she's not going to blow through you maybe like a Venus or a Serena or a Mary Pierce or a Sharapova. But she understood the geometry of the court. She bisected the court correctly, had a great drop shot, but a brutal competitor. But mentally, she had that box checked. A bomb could go off on the next court. She'd still be looking at me. And that's why I come up with this. She's the scariest little creature I ever taught, and she'll be a Grand Slam champion. And that was in uh, Tennis Magazine 2005. Wow, you've worked with some you've worked with some unbelievable players. In the meantime, you're trying to grow an academy. You have a big academy. Like you spend a lot of time with players on court. Let's say the Williams sisters, five hours a day. How? What challenges? First of all, did you have running academy, trying to grow an academy while spending so much time with these players and investing so much money in these players? First off, great question. You know, with the with the Venus and Serena thing, uh, people might have thought. That would help the business, but it actually hurt the business because I'm not involved as much as I would be with the groups or even privately. And you got the jealous factor, you know, uh, the dad saying they're the best ever. Rick Macy saying, I think these kids can be better in Capriati or they're going to be number one. And they're like legendary and they haven't done anything. I mean, that's pretty brutal. And you know how junior tennis is. Yeah, that was tricky back then. But obviously, I have no regrets. Uh, I have a different model now. We don't really do boarding. You know, that becomes a whole nother business when you got to worry about vans and insurance and, you know, kids and boys and girls. And you can figure that one out. That becomes a whole different thing. But what's different with the model that I have, the methodology that Brian Gordon, Dr. Brian Gordon and I put together is cutting edge. So the teaching we do is better than anybody in the world. Plus, I'm on the court available to privates with anybody, any age. So that's a whole different thing besides the 12 other coaches and the fitness. But I got out of the boarding a long time ago because it really didn't work. You were trying to run a business and you had to do it on volume. You know, whether we have 40 kids or 20 kids, it's irrelevant right now simply because I drive the engine and I teach so many privates, you know, because I'm always one on one uh, with a lot of kids and they come because people want personal attention. I've never been the type of guy to go court to court and say, bend your knees, you know, follow through. You know, that's just silly stuff. You know, I can accomplish more. People learn more in one hour with me than they might in one hour. I mean, one year in New York. You got to understand, these are the comments I get back, the way I can put Humpty Dumpty together and correct things and kind of expedite that learning curve. So it's a very different thing that I do. And I've had, there's four coaches here that have been with me almost 10 years. That's unheard of in this business. Yeah, that's a good you sign. Know? And today, obviously, the Rick Macy Tennis Academy and your business in general, like you are, a, you're an A-list celeb these days. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of opportunities there for you. I'm sure you seem to be focused, so I'm sure you shut down a lot of them. But how do you manage it all? How do you manage to maintain and grow the business? Uh, do you have business partners? And how do you keep that focus? No, you know, it's, it's I, I'm glad you're sitting down because I answer every email. My phone number is out there. When I pick up the phone and they say, is this a tennis academy? I say, even better, you got Rick Macy. And they go, no way. And so when I can connect one-on-one -on -one with a person from Missouri or Alaska or Australia or New Zealand or wherever, Ireland, they're like blown away. And then when they hear me talk, they could kind of hear it's kind of like the guy in the movie or whatever. And no one can answer the questions quicker and better than myself or sell the program, you know, what the people want. But that's just the way I've always been, hands-on. Uh, maybe that's why I got to get up at three o'clock because I got a lot I got to do. And I, I run the business the, the marketing part of it. My daughter helped me with the social media part, but I answer all the emails and uh, no, I don't have any partners. It's, it's my business. Uh, it works. It's a model like no other because I have, I have a niche and we also have this facility 
uh, that's beyond crazy. And we have over like 75 tournaments a year here. Yeah. well, we're That's a whole other thing besides the academy. We have a couple of questions regarding the tournaments for you. Before we get on to that, we're going to talk about young players who want to play all day on court. You know where they're over-enthusiastic. How do you handle players who, you know, so they don't get burnt out, they don't play too much at a young age? What's your advice for coaches who have players like that? And maybe the parents who drive it as well. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm glad you put that in at the end. I don't feel the kids burn out because they want to play too much. If someone wants to play a lot, that means they love it and they have passion. It goes back to my Greenville days. You, you can't buy passion at Walgreens or Publix or buy it over the Internet. You know, if you love it. That's going to weather the storm. That's going to help you through the losses, you know, all the turbulences that you're going to go through. So I don't think you can play too much. I'm very different than some people that think they have this playbook two hours and focus on that. Mm. You know, it's a repetition sport. Obviously, you don't want to get injured, but it has to come from you. I feel the parents get burned out. Now, when the kids are little, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, let's face it. Most of the parents are booking tickets for Wimbledon and they're probably going to be watching on TV. That's what, then when the kids get older and they see the other side of the rainbow and the kids get 15, they get a girlfriend, a boyfriend, driver's license. Then the parent gets pushed a little more in the back row and they go, okay, we got to really focus on college, you know, to get the best scholarship or whatever. And that should be the goal. Get a college scholarship, D1, two or three. Um, And listen, I help people get, college scholarships that go to other academies you know i'll make a call and you know it's over probably 50 million dollars with the college scholarship i just like helping the kids and um so but when the end of the day about that question passion you can't that kids want to play you got to let them play and you talk about uh, you've competitions every weekend at your academy. How important are competitions for juniors and competing? No, it's a, first off, it's the most. And see, if anybody had a playbook, think about this. Since I coach Venus Serena, besides many others, obviously, they play no tournaments. So if anybody could say, I could write a book, shut junior tennis down, don't play any tournaments. You got one girl, young lady, who's going to be the greatest female ever to hold a racket. And maybe her sister, in my opinion, is the second best. I know that's debatable, but she did beat Serena 12 times. No one else can say that, you know, like Venus. So there's an argument Mm -hmm. there. But look at that leverage I have. Don't play any tournaments. Develop your game. But then again, they had hitting partners. Like I said, filet mignon, me every day. They had the ability. It had to be put together. So, but to answer your question, you got to compete. You got to learn how to win. You got to learn how to lose. You learn the geometry of the court. You see different styles, different personalities. It just prepares you. That's the normal conduit, okay, to college and then professional tennis. But that being said, you can play too many tournaments because yeah. people play tournaments. Oh, I got to get a better UTR. I get it. I got to get up my national ranking. I got to play ITF. They span the globe. And listen, work on your game you know you got to break it down microscopically in practice minute details talk about it learn every detail and then you go into combat and hopefully you have the weapons people don't do that they try not to lose to win and they never reach their ability that's a whole nother podcast we could do with me talking about how to develop a player because i see this more than anything you know, because you want more kids to come to your academy if people are winning. Mm. And it's hard to, to do that, you know. And I've done that a lot, you know, positive errors. Don't be afraid to miss. I teach courage. I give people confidence before they get confidence. And then they get more confidence. I do it very differently than probably anybody in the world. Listen, I'm all for consistency and resetting the point in zone three. But I teach people how to pull the trigger. And now if they're out of control, a maniac... I got to teach him different. You know, I got to put the governor on in the emergency break. So it's not one size fits all, but most of the time people try not to lose because you still got a shot. But the difference between great and good 
great delivers better under pressure because they're not afraid. Yeah, funny, we had Ivan Lubitschik on the podcast last week and he talked about that We, because he'd played so many great players. I said, look, what's the difference between this group and the ones who didn't get that far? And he goes, look, they just know how to play the points at the right time. They know when to pull the trigger. They may not pull the trigger the whole match and then five all in the second they manage to get a break point. They make that first return they've made all day and the thing changes. So it's really backing up what you're saying. But Ivan said something else that I want to ask you about uh, based on your experience. He said kids these days, one, a lot of them don't know some of the greats. He was mentioning a kid didn't know who, who was a serving volley kid, didn't know who Pat Rafter was. And two, he says that kids these days don't watch enough live matches. They don't watch matches in full they may watch a minute highlight or two but they don't understand the game enough and how much can be learned from that do you agree with that rick absolutely you know when i bring up people from the past especially when i talk about the volley it's funny you brought up rafter okay uh tommy ho actually beat him and then four years later he wins the open so you know it's not where you start it's where you finish but no but like rafter edberg Okay, even McEnroe, you know, the compactness and stability of the volley, you know, these guys were rock solid, but people need to watch and learn. Okay, because sometimes it's more powerful than someone explaining it or you understanding it. Or maybe if you're an analytical type person, because I deal with a lot of smart kids, obviously, I don't want them to think. I want them to react. And I tell them to watch video all the time. I just did something on YouTube. A great tip is to go watch and watch subliminally, see it over and over again. Because most people play better, like club players, after they watch someone play. You know, because you don't want to think, you want to react. But I definitely agree with that. And people nowadays, kids, they want instant gratification. They want shortcuts. It's our society. You know, they don't understand it takes a long time to build a house. But this is where someone like myself who has all this experience with just a medley of personalities and players, I can explain it probably as well as anybody in the world and and how to go about doing this. But it's a tough sell. Listen, parents eventually, once they get comfortable, they're telling me how to hit a forehand. So you got to understand what I deal with. But I know when to just, uh, okay, you know, move on to the next subject. And that's for any coaches watching this, you got to you got to know when to really actually keep your mouth shut and not say anything and not get your ego involved. And remember, you're there for the kid. So the parents not going to change. They're kind of set in their own ways. And when they leave the court that night, you're not going to be at the dinner table. So you got to remember, because uh, if they don't like it, they're going somewhere else. And are you for against on court coaching? I don't really care one way or another. You know, I don't. I like saying new school, old school. I, I like it when the players have to figure it out. You know, but I'm I'm not against it. You know, one whatsoever. But just figuring it out is good. But and I know people say, well, it's in other sports. You know, I, I get that all the time. But I think tennis is a little different. I think that's what makes it unique to try to figure it out. Uh, but either way, I'm for it either way. It doesn't really matter to me. Let's say you have players who may deal with setbacks. They don't expect, like they may lose to somebody they don't expect to lose to. They may get injured, be out for a while. How do you help them stay, you know, persistent, keep them focused? Uh, what do you do to help those sort of players who struggle a bit mentally after setback? First off, great question. You know, it's not where you start, it's where you finish. This is junior development. It's not junior final destination. And then I give stories of people who might have been the best at 12 and 14. You never heard of them at 18. Or people you never even heard of, and boom, I got thousands, not hundreds. So I can tell these stories to the kids and tell them about their potential. And you got to educate them. Because kids are going to have their own opinion, you know, and then if there's an injury, the first thing when they come back, the footwork's going to be off and stuff like that. And you, you got to just understand, you miss that shot maybe because you're little or you got little arms or legs. When you're 10 pounds heavier and three inches taller, you'd have got there smiling and you'd have buzzed the winner down the line. And I, I, I teach people different and I try to bring them back about where this can go and I tell stories about people where they were at and look where they're at at 18 or look where they're at at 25, you know, and when you can have that resource and give the kids that knowledge, 
And I try to point out the positives, but that's the art of coaching. Knowing when to hug them, know when you got to squeeze them, but really accent the positives of what they do and how good that is. And for any coaches watching this, when they do something really good, you got to make an amazing big deal about it. And when they do something bad, you got to make an amazing big, big deal about it. That way you have this and it carries more weight. You can't be their friend all the time or you can't just be beating someone down, you know. And what I do is I try to extract greatness out of people and people want to be around that because no parent or coach knows what's inside another human being. No one does. Not an MRI or an X-ray. You don't know what's inside someone because people change and the brain's not developed yet as with these young kids. So, but people pass judgment way, way too soon. And like I said, the more you can inspire and lead by example and believe, because if you believe for them, mm. that can help them believe. And that's, that's a big thing, you know, like in anything. But people get caught up in the wrong stuff and, you know, you can become really negative and down or whatever. And you're there to, like I said, motivate and get them to another level, yeah. no matter what's going on. No matter it, this thing can change in the blink of an eye. And, you know, you mentioned players and look, we all know this, not players, but people, kids in general these days, they want instant rewards. They want everything now. They can order stuff off the web, have it tomorrow. There's no, there's no like, delayed gratification and how do you like patience and discipline is such a thing characteristic needed for tennis players how do you train that characteristic for the kids at your academy i think that's the toughest thing in today's society you know and even the parents you know because they're obviously younger than me also you know they want what's best for their kids they want their kid rough and tough they want their kid be a brutal competitor and then they go to the mall and buy him a Gucci bag after saying all that to him. It doesn't make sense. Once again, it's stories. I give iconic, epic speeches all the time to the kids about what you just said. You know what I mean? About the long-term process. You, you got you to gotta put in the work brick by brick by brick by brick. No one missed more swing volleys that I've ever taught in my life than Venus Williams. And no one was more confident and made more swing volleys on the pro tour than Venus Williams. No one missed more volleys as a junior than Pete Sampras. And he knew where you were gonna hit it before you did when he got into pros. You gotta fail to succeed. Every time you miss, you're getting better. You know, so this is kind of how I explain it. I don't look at it like, oh, you never missed up. If you didn't, if you didn't double fault today, you're probably not hitting your second serve the way you should. And if you didn't make any errors, uh, you're not playing the way I want you to play. Not that you're going to go out there and shoot missiles from North Korea and miss every other ball. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's all how you explain it. And I can just get kids to do things they never thought they could do, but it takes time. And Rick, what, so what ultimately drives you? Is it just the love of the game, the love of seeing somebody improve? It's just amazing the way you say, like, you know, you get somebody on the court for an hour, you give them your full attention, which is so hard. I've gone to fitness classes where you pay a personal trainer and they have their phone out and they're over there. And you're <laughs> like, I'm paying you. And what are you doing on your phone? So, you know, to have somebody fo focusing, I've heard great business people, sometimes you get them in a room and they just laser focus on you. You're having to chat with them. You're not as successful as them, but they just have this charisma that, you know, you're the only person in the world. What drives you to be like that? First off, great question. And you said it right. Uh, but I do pick up my phone when they go get a drink because I, it's always like buzzing. But uh, so, yeah, I do. I do that. Um, but at the end of the day, I just love to help others. And I look at everything as a challenge, you know, and I try to figure things out. I'm just on a mission. I've never mailed it in, you know, I've just always been that way. And through that routine and through that structure, listen, I've done this since age 22 and I'm 68 now. No one's been on a court more than Rick Macy, nobody, you know, teaching. And you just become that. And now you're almost like a game within a game within a game. You know, we were talking about this the other day um, on the podcast with Michael Chandler, three-time MMA champion, you know, you almost feel guilty you know, I run a half mile every day. It's not like I'm getting, I can't wait to run a half mile. 
But after you're done, you feel good about it. I almost feel guilty. So I would never, and you got to be a professional. You got to be, have pride. Maybe some people can mail it in because there's so many people. You're at a club, the next person's coming, and it's easy. You know, I've never been like that. I've just always tried to get better. And like I said, I got better today. I got better today uh, on whoever I taught. You know, a 15-year-old boy from New England uh, comes to mind. You know, we, I just got, I learned a lot from him and he learned a lot from me. And I, I just look at it differently like that. And I think when you have success, you can kind of get caught up in that. And I've just never been like that. I'm, I got the best is yet to come. I got a lot of good things in the oven. They're baking. We'll see where this all goes. But it's what I expect of myself. And I, if I'm not, if I'm going to go on the tennis court, it's a hundred percent. And what are the future plans, Rick? What's baking in the oven? Yeah. Well, first off, I do this great podcast called Game Set Life with David Meltzer, one of the top motivational speakers uh, in the world. And you know, we do that every Tuesday at three o'clock Eastern Standard Time. Amazing guests: Marshall Falk, Michael Chandler, Kerry Walsh Jennings. Austin Eckler of the Chargers. So, you know, we're going to have Snoop Dogg. We're going to have all kinds of people. So, you know, and, you know, David, I partner with him. You know, I've had since, really since the movie. I think people saw, uh, listen, I've always had my platform on the court. I've done motivational speaking a little bit and clinics, but I'm always on the court. And when you run a business, I got to be here. I don't leave the nest a lot. You know, when I went out to the red carpet, I'll answer your question in a minute, uh, for the premiere, went back to memory lane with Venus and Serena. We're crying, laughing, stories. I had Serena on the ground. You have no idea because she's looking through the, at that time as a 11 year old, as a teenager. And we went back down memory lane. It's like, it's amazing. Well, the best time of my life. And then reconnecting with Richard at his house. He kept saying, Rick, thank you for getting us out of the ghetto. He's the funniest guy ever. He was my best friend, you know? So even though he tortured me, okay, I can <laughs> take that part. So, but no, you know, when it's all said and done, um, you know, if you love what you do, it just, it, it, it changes everything. Well, say the question again, because there's more to I, what you said. I said, what well, are what's, you, in the what's, oven? what's bacon yeah. in the so, oven? Yeah, you know, from, from the uh, movie, people right away, like the girl that played Little Venus, Sanaya Sidney, hmm. her and her agent called me and said, we got to meet this Rick Macy guy. So they called me and we set up something because they were just amazed with the, the character. And I still didn't see the movie, so I wasn't sure what they were talking about. Like, whoa. Then once the movie came out and then I started doing a lot of interviews and people wanted to talk to me and podcasts. And they saw me off the tennis court more. Not that I didn't do this a little bit before, but nothing like this tsunami that came. So now they're seeing, whoa, whoa. You know, Fox News, ABC, NBC, I could go on and on. So at the end of the day, people in Hollywood said, wait a minute, this guy's better than Ted Lasso. And I didn't know who Ted Lasso was. You might know who he is. I, I didn't him. know who he was. I had to Google the guy. They go, wait, this is the original. OK, so once I saw that, I started laughing a little bit. And so people, some producers in Hollywood said, we want to do something with Rick Macy. So I started going down the road a little bit with a few uh, producer, uh, big production companies, but I've decided with David to do it on my own. And what's in the oven? It's called the Phenom Maker. All right. And because I've had five girls, I all predicted that'd be number one or win a Grand Slam when they were under 12. And it's the uh, making of a champion. What goes into this with these young girls? Okay. Um, and they all became number one or that. So, and it's going to be a competition like American Idol. Okay. Where thousands are going to, I'm glad you're sitting down. Thousands are going to try out for this from age five to 25. It doesn't matter. It's what I see under the hood. There's going to be all kinds of like drills and stuff they do and so on and so forth. There'll be a competition and we'll whittle it down to 16. Then from there, the winner of this, it's going to go 16 eight quarter semi the winner of this right away gets a hundred thousand dollars they're going to get two million dollars in travel training housing it doesn't matter if you're in ethiopia south africa you know ireland whoever wins this competition and i think they can be number one in the world 
It could be someone 25, and if I think they can't be number one, I might pick a seven-year-old. You got to understand, I don't, I don't want to get into all the details, but mm. that's kind of how it's going to play out. It's going to be mind-boggling, okay? I'm just finalizing the educational sizzle reel now, and I'm going to be doing presentations to some people in California in February. So, but I got to control the whole thing because I, this is how I want to do it. And who knows if it becomes amazing, which I know it's going to be, we might do in two years something with the boys, but this is going to be incredible. Amazing. I have two more questions for you, Rick. Uh, one is what can people do? What can players do to be 1% better every day? I love that question. If you want to get better, okay, the first thing you got to do is really change your attitude. Your altitude, how high you're going to go, is going to be turned by attitude. The only thing you got control over, okay, maybe your toss on your serve, but you don't have control over anything. The only thing you got control over is your attitude. And let's face it, the best of the best of all the rest are the most positive creatures that walk the face of the earth. And at the highest level of sports, listen, everybody gets mad. Everybody gets nervous, everybody chokes, but the best don't do it as much. And they're more in that ideal performance state where they're calm, but they're intense. And that's what separates great from good. So it's the attitude. So it'd be the attitude. You can get, I'll take it more. I say 50% better. I guarantee people cannot go a week without making excuses in the game of life or tennis. I'm probably as much a life coach as a tennis yeah. coach. You know, it's more to it. And some parents want their kids just to be around that. And I think that's like the most important thing. I don't want to get into biomechanics and all that stuff or strategy or conditioning. I don't want to say it's vanilla, but it's the mind that controls the body. And if you want to get the most out of your ability, you got to be a brutal competitor and it starts with a positive attitude. Well, and last question for you, Rick, you know, you've made a lot of good calls, positive calls over the years, all these under 12s who became great Grand Slam champion number one. But today, if we look back in this in 10 years time, do you have an under 12 you can call out today that could possibly be a future number one? I have a lot of good kids. I see a lot of good kids, uh, but she's actually going to be moving here shortly there's this little girl from Ukraine, okay? She can't even go back there for many reasons. Um, death all around, uh, just a brutal situation that you cannot imagine. But this girl is bulletproof. Mentally, she has it. She's fearless. She appreciates the sun shining in Florida, okay? And I can put Humpty Dumpty together. And she's already signed with this management company I'm with, Edge, and even though she's 11 years old. I know that's quite young because we've got to give her an opportunity uh, to go for this. But I'm going to be training her every day and I have no doubt whatsoever. Her first name is Sophia. I'll save her last name. She's, she's amazing. She's little. She's small. People can't see it, but that's okay. I tell people all the time, what you may see is different than Rick may see. So I tell people that all the time. Okay. Uh, she has what it takes, barring injury. Uh, little Sophia from Ukraine, I know can be, uh, I think she can be one of the best players in the world, uh, if not number one someday. Well, well I'll, I'll keep, I'll have that on record now. So be interesting to check out in a few years time. But finally, Rick, I look forward to, I know we chatted about this before, I'm going to head over to your part of the world later this year. I look forward to that serve lesson, sorting out my serve with you. And thank you very much for, that was a really interesting chat. No, no problem. Listen, when you come for the serve, one or two things going to happen. Your serve's going to become iconic or I'm going to probably make you take up golf. So I don't know what's going to happen, but when I dive in, I'm going to show you exactly what you need to do and it's definitely going to get better. Love it. And we're going to document it on YouTube. So in it, it'll be probably a couple of months time, but we'll have a great video, short video with Rick showing us all the tricks of the trade on the serve and hopefully squeeze me out another a bit of consistency or speed. I don't know yet which I want, but it will be one or the other. But thank you very much, Rick. No, I enjoyed it and we'll do it again.
that's the end of the show for today. Thank you so much for Rick for coming on the show. Your passion and insight is really inspiring and I'm delighted you're still on the court teaching the next generation of greats today. And thank you all at home for listening to the show. Next week on the podcast, I speak to former Irish tennis player Peter Botwell about his time in the game and how to get 1% better every day. Peter was the first Northern Irish tennis player to get an ATP Tour ranking, to play for Davis Cup and to win many tournaments. He had an incredible career. He's since retired and he's now taken up a job helping younger players in Northern Ireland as well as now working for Alison Risk, a top 50 WTA player and he's starting his journey with her. We catch up with him, learn all about it. Can't wait for you to listen next week. Just a few quick notes before we go. Make sure to follow the show so you get automatically notified about new episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would like to learn more about me or the work we do at Functional Tennis, visit our website at functionaltennis.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at the Functional Tennis Podcast and with me on Twitter, Fab Mall. This podcast is produced by One Fine Play. James Bishop is the executive producer. Connor Foley is the series producer and editor. I've been your host, Fabio Molly. Thanks for listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Thank you.